As someone who has coached hundreds of writers over the years, one of the most persistent struggles that I have heard haunt the experience of those who want to tell stories is this. How do I know if a story is really my own to tell? Despite the social media culture in which we live, wherein, with a couple taps of the thumb, we can broadcast a feeling, reaction, opinion, or experience for the entire world to see, telling personal stories can feel particularly challenging and complex when they include the lives and the experiences of other people. Now, it's almost impossible to tell a personal story without including others in it, And that brings a lot of moral and ethical questions into focus, like what do you share or omit? Does a commitment to full truth and candor and transparency trump protecting someone else's privacy? What do you owe and to whom? Now, imagine that you're not just trying to tell a story from your own personal life, but the stories of many people. Many people, in the context of a particular social moment— in, say, a historically significant place, and whose stories have tended to be neglected, misunderstood, or mischaracterized for generations. How do you possibly tell their stories? Well, our guest today, in many ways, has. And the answer, at least in part, may go a little something like this. You tell their stories by becoming a part of their stories. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. We're joined today by Joseph C. Awudzi Jr., the Van Associate Professor of Racial Justice at Davidson College in North Carolina. In his work as a cultural sociologist, Joseph studies belonging. His research explores us and them dynamics in modern society, including what forces in society either allow for belonging or reinforce alienation. His latest book is called Getting Something to Eat in Jackson, Race, Class, and Food in the American South. Joseph offers a vivid portrait of African-American life in today's urban South, telling the stories of the lives and experiences of those living in Jackson, Mississippi in the present day through the lens of food, its history, and its accessibility. In his comprehensive research for the book, Joseph embedded himself in various experiences throughout the community that included living as an unhoused person, working in a Black-owned barbecue restaurant, shadowing low-income families just trying to get by, and sitting at some fine dining tables with Jackson's most well-off families. Getting Something to Eat in Jackson was the winner of the 2021 C. Wright Mills Award for Outstanding Social Science Research. Joseph, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So, Joseph, for those of us who don't reside in academic circles and who are unfamiliar with what ethnography is and what kind of research an ethnographer does, would you mind telling us a little bit about the work that it takes to write a book like you wrote here? Yeah. Ethnography is this sort of old school way of learning something. The the word itself always makes it sound fancier than it is. It's just the basic thing that I'm sure your mother, grandmother, whoever would tell you. If you want to learn about something, you got to go close to the people who are doing the thing that you want to learn about. You want to you want to spend as much time with them as possible. So for us, it's like if you want to learn about poverty, if you want to learn about, but it could be for anything, right? There's really good ethnography book about boxing. There's a really good ethnography book about going out late at night and dating really good, right? Whatever the experience that you want to learn about, you just got to go. And as we would say, embed yourself as completely as possible and as ethically as possible and the lives of the people doing the thing that you want to learn about. Yeah, and you mentioned two key words there, to embed yourself, I think you said as as uh, completely as possible, but also as ethically as possible. So I'm wondering about uh, when it comes to having this firsthand experience and, and really trying to embed yourself in a community and in the lives of people, before I ask you how you do it, it feels 
objectively, like very daunting and complex <laughs> to, to do this. I know you said it's, it's a pretty basic way of researching something by learning firsthand. It also seems kind of overwhelming. So why is this kind of research, which I, I believe it's called a, a qualitative form of research as opposed to a quantitative or something more mm-hmm. like numbers based. Mm-hmm. So when mm-hmm. you're looking for a more qualitative form of research like this, why do you think it's so important, especially when you're trying to capture, say, like the lives and the experiences of people? Is this really the only way to do it and honor and try to best honor the people whom you're uh, speaking for? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think so. There's a, there's a lot of different ways to answer that question. One is if we think about it in comparison to quantitative work, right? Like, you know, you listen to the news and if they want to tell you about some finding from a good research project, they will shoot out some number to you, like 50% of whoever believes this and that's this or whatever, right? Um, so what they did is to ask, let's say 100 people, usually it's a lot more than that. Let's say a thousand, two thousand, a hundred thousand people, right? And we do this, especially around election time, you know, surveys. Um, they asked a hundred people to give you their thought one time. So that means they have one hundred instances of people responding to this one question, right? So, so again, we have recorded from a hundred people this one instance. For me, as an ethnographer, if I had ten people that I was following. I want to be in their lives long enough to watch um, 10 times the answer to that. So if we do that, then that just means I am getting, I am from 10 people, I'm getting the answer to what are you going to, how do you feed yourself 10 times? It turns out we're observing the same amount of instances as a quantitative person would do, but we're just doing it from less people and just getting that sort of a uh, uh, response as many times as possible. So in some ways, we're just looking at different things. We're, we're, we're looking at the same thing from a different way of measuring that number of instances that we're looking at it. Another way to think about it is to say, if if so, I read I read a study this morning that said um, when mothers, when women, women with infants, their voter turnout drops. Let's say by something like five percent. That's what the study was saying. For men, it's like three percent. That tells us so much, but also so little. It tells us on a really aggregate scale what is happening. But as an ethnographer, I have more questions. That doesn't tell me exactly, the, the quantitative data is going to tell me the trend, the larger story. But the qualitative data, for me, doesn't tell me the mechanism that is getting mothers to vote less when they have toddlers. Obviously, we can come up with so many stories, right? Like, kids take a ton of time, and I may not have time to go vote. Like, that's probably the simplest thing. Um, um, but an ethnographer would spend, you know, two months, three months, usually eight months, if you, you know, really want to hit it, like a year, spending a lot of time with mothers and trying to understand what is the thing, what's the mechanism that gets them to behave differently than they did before. And so if quantitative research gives us like really beautiful trends, really large scale data, Data. The other thing that we also say is that like it's generalizable, meaning um, the thing, even though we only spoke to a thousand people, it's not just the experiences of these thousand people. We can also say all the people in this state may also. So it gives us all of that, which is amazing. What it doesn't give us is the mechanism that explains the trends that they're finding. Um, Closer to what I'm interested in is is how do people feel about the experiences that we're interested in? How do others around them feel about the interest, uh, the, the experience that we're interested in? Um, um, how do they navigate the thing that we're interested in? So they're also really minute sort of like, this is when social, a social science researcher like me sort of leans towards humanities, right? What is the human experience like when we're doing these things? Um, I go on and on, but that's some of the ways that I would say qualitative research in general and ethnography in particular, um, some of the strengths, some of the things that it gives us that other kinds of research, especially quantitative research gives us. 
I can tell you're a, a great professor because you just broke down a pretty complex subject with expert efficiency. So <laughs> thank you for, for the added education. And I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it too. So it sounds like, uh, Joseph, that ethnography gives you the opportunity from a research perspective to go deeper. And while you, you're looking to generate the same quantity of data points, there's more perhaps richness and more detail to the data that you experience. And like you said, you love to, to ask people about not only what's happening, but how they feel about an experience. And so my next question is about the specific population, the group of people, the, the individuals that you uh, embedded yourself with for getting something to eat in Jackson, because you said something interesting, which I know is a, a research term, something when something is generalizable. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, uh, from, from my non-ethnographic point of view, it means um, being able to kind of extrapolate something right. that, that is more or less uh, applicable to like a larger group. So help us to like understand a bigger trend through you know precise research methods. I wonder about this kind of research and the kinds of story that stories that you tell, but also uh, a singular story really in your book. When it comes to people from historically marginalized identities and and for whom there are lots of like stereotypes, misconceptions, and a historical precedent where the story has not been their own to tell. And there's been kind of like outside view and outside stories, maybe even ascribed onto the population of these individuals. I say that to ask, is ethnography and this kind of qualitative research especially important when you're trying to glean the stories and experiences of people from marginalized identity yeah. groups? Yeah, so that's that's a really uh, a tough, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. It's a tough one. Um, and 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 it's something that I frankly struggled with, right? Uh, so I'm going to Jackson, Mississippi, to do this project, um, and people will be like, "Well, why Jackson? Are you from?" I'm not from Jackson. Uh, I'm not from the American South. I was born and raised in Ghana, West Africa. I'm an immigrant in this country, uh, and I've lived most of my time in the U.S. in the Northeast and in the Midwest, right? So. People from the South are also really particular about their stories being told, right? Because it's been mistold and overtold and undertold so many times. So, but I'm black like people in Mississippi. But let's not think that my blackness allows me or my blackness, my blackness excludes me from potentially being one of those outsiders who goes and tells somebody else's story. Right. Because I'm not like 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 just because we share a skin color doesn't mean that the story of people in Mississippi is my story to tell. I was very clear on that. It's not my story to tell. So I agonized a lot over that. So 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 I, I too, have to deal with this question. And then I think the second thing is to is to figure out. Well, every time an, a researcher shows up, the researcher is even if they're from there, the researcher puts on a research hat and the researcher is automatically always like you're in an outsider role, even though you're from there. Right. So I think researchers are always beginning in that outsider ish role, even if they're from there. So like we also have to sort of think about that. OK, so that's the second thing. And then the third the third sort of branch of the question is like, does ethnography allow us to bypass that? It could. Theoretically. But in some ways, it actually doesn't always do that. And part of it is us wondering, what is it that you're telling the story for? Like, what, what's the purpose of, of this? And of course, for us as researchers, we're doing it to learn something and share with the general public. But I think we also always have to be honest about the professional um, um, motivations for doing these kinds of projects, right? The My project in Jackson, Mississippi was my dissertation. I had to do it to get my PhD. My project was to help me when I finished, I wanted a job. I'm doing it to also get, right? So I think all of those kinds of things are in there and let's not also see, like let's not pretend that those aren't part of the formulation and the calculation, right? Like the book goes out, it does well. Who is this book benefiting the most? You know, one could say it's telling the story of these marginalized populations, these homeless men um, who, but it's also benefiting me a great deal, right? It helps me in my career and so on and so forth. So I think all of those kinds of things are important. 
But in defense of ethnography, I do think that there's something that we do that's really, really interesting. Um, some master ethnographers just put out this book called Qualitative Liter- Literacy. In the book, they're trying to say, you know, we know a good ethnography when we see it, but like if we actually could pin down what makes an eth- a piece of ethnography good, what is it? One of the things they mentioned was this idea called cognitive empathy, right? And cognitive empathy is essentially the degree to which, and I'm reading from the text here, the degree to which the researcher understands how those interviewed or observed view the world and themselves, and here's the kicker, from their perspective, right? So it's not capturing how people view the world and themselves from my perspective as a researcher, but it's how they view themselves from their perspective. I love that as being the first thing they wrote in this book about what makes a piece of qualitative research good. Because I think that's what we're trying to do is that like, I want to understand the world of the, of these folks that I spend so much time with, not from my perspective, not from everything that I know in my head, not from the luxury of having contemplated food, not from right. Having the peace of mind to know that I'm not going to go to bed hungry, but from the perspective of, of the people that we're spending time with. And I think if we do that well, what we're doing isn't just honoring them, but it's also making sure that what they think and how they view the world is very much present in conversations about food. And if there's any contribution that my book makes, I think that's what it tries to do. And I think it highlights what happens if we don't take their perspective seriously enough. Um, We end up making policies that seem to not be working as well as they could be. Yeah, there's there's so much there that I want to discuss. Thank you for for that answer. Um, and wow, this idea of like cognitive empathy as it was described is really striking me as a game changer and how it distinguishes a few things. It, it kind of it, I'm going to try not to go on too deep of a or too deep or too far of a tangent, but <laughs> the dis, the distinction, Joseph, and I I wonder if you agree. If you don't, also tell me or if I'm misunderstanding it, but. Empath- like when we discuss empathy, we tend to um, we tend to speak of empathizing with somebody as if we have the ability to experience what they're feeling and to stand mm-hmm. in their shoes or to sit in their mm-hmm. seat. Mm-hmm. But but the the important distinction is that no one actually has that ability to fully feel and be in the experience. So this is shifting from tr- feel what they feel to try to cognitively empathize with what they're saying they feel. And there's that little bit of space, which is like a matter right. of respect and just mm-hmm. acknowledgement for the fact that I will never be able to, to experience what you experience, even if you tell me every little detail in, in full depth, right? Like there, there's a, I can't be you That's right. as hard as I try, right? Is that kind That's of right. how it breaks down? Yeah. That's right. And there's, there's a humility to that, right? Like yeah. um, if you don't apply that humility to being an ethnographer, you can go in too deep, right? Which is something that we worry about too, right? Where like, you're just like going so far to try to, but you essentially, uh, you can't and you have to, you have to be, you have to be whatever enough to know that like you're expressing this, right? So, so this comes to matter when you sit down to write the book and it comes to matter when you make certain decisions about how you're writing the book. And so if you're noticing, um, I'm present in the book. I'm everywhere, right? And and I am making it very clear that I'm writing all of this from my perspective because that's me recognizing that as much as I, as much time as I spent there and as much as I would want to be in their shoes. I can't actually be in their shoes. And so everything I'm reporting to you is my perception of what as close as possible to what they're going through. Now, there's a bunch of tricks and ways of writing and telling the stories that tries to get the readers to believe that I'm giving you as close as a close reading of their perceptions as I can. Uh, right. So inside of cognitive empathy, the three things that you're always trying to figure out is their perception their meaning that they're making and the motivations for what they do for, for, for why they do what they do. And so you're trying to represent that from 
their point of view as closely as possible while keeping in mind that you're not them. Yeah. And I love I love that you called attention to, for for our, our listeners who haven't read your book, and I, I do hope they'll pick it up. We have the a link to the in the show notes. But I do lo- love, Joseph, how you shared just then that it was very conscious a choice for you yeah. to, to write yourself in the story as opposed yeah. to pretending that you were making some sort of like scientific observations in a lab. And that's it's one of the things that I found most um uh most like uh I was gonna I don't even know how to describe it. Most grabbing uh, in Mm -hmm. experiencing your book and reading the stories that we're meeting these characters who are actually like, you know, represent, they're real people, but they're your representations of them, right? As we're, as we're trying to make these distinctions uh, in in our conversation. Um, But we're, we're walking with you in the experience, in your experience of these individuals and, you know, what it means to be homeless and unhoused and what it means to, um, you know, be facing your mortality and trying to change your diet, what it means to be sitting at these fine dining tables and almost feeling like a, a totally different experience, but a, but still a shared experience with Precisely. others in a very small community. So um, yeah, the, the emphasis on what is their perception, what is the, or your best ability to say, what is their perception, what is their meaning, and what is their motivation um, is, is a very fascinating way to try to create some context. And it, it leads all back to what you said earlier about understanding your own motivations for the story that you're trying to tell and and what are you telling the story for and a humility and acknowledgement that this isn't a totally altruistic effort that they that there are some selfish motivations and and that also that's okay right uh because i think that that recognition is an important is important for the story's teller because if you don't have that clarity you're going to kind of step deeper into like moral or ethical issues that's right. That's right. And it's it's exactly that. And I mean, you know, I'm a, we're ethnographers are also not investigative reporters. There's no got you moment here. There's more there's no moment of like hiding what you're doing from people. There's no it's like full disclosure to whatever whoever wants to hear. People have a right to say I don't want to be included. People have a right to say actually don't don't even though I spend time, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, the idea of consent is always tricky, right? Can people ever completely give their consent? But as much as possible, people have a right to say, I want to do this, or I don't want to do this. And you want to honor that as much as possible. Yeah. And that's a great transition point to talk a little bit more about the experience of doing the research in your book. Um, and, and also like what happens after, uh, what happens after you do this extensive research over many months and many years, I know that you did most of your research for getting something to eat in Jackson in 2011, 2012, and 2016. Um, and I wonder if the challenges that you experienced, you know, there, there's like the firsthand challenges, so to speak, like trying to live as an unhoused person. And you speak to a lot of like the internal struggles that you had early in doing this research and like the crazy, like cognitive dissonance that you Mm. experienced between like sitting in these like pews uh, where you were expected to sleep for the night, but there being these like extraordinarily, uh, I would say oppressive rules that are meant Mm. to apparently govern like order in uh, Mm -hmm. among the, the, the unhoused population, but really come through as like, condescending and mm. punitive and mm. restrictive and um and then watching tv and seeing like these celebrities on tv and like the extreme wealth on tv contrasted with the extreme poverty that you were in so you speak to these these struggles and like how difficult it was for you i wonder though about after doing the research in the context of what we're discussing here of being a stories teller Mm-hmm. Did you find that the the like you know the moral ethical dilemmas, the questions that you were asking about, like what story is or isn't yours to tell, did it get any easier after doing the research, or did it become more complex? To oversimplify, did it become more complex after doing the research? If if it was either one or the other, yeah. Um, so you know we're human too, right? When you're entering and doing this research, your your full humanity is present, right? In fact, as an ethnographer, one of the instruments of conducting your research is 
your humanity. It's your body. It's your stories. It's your sensibilities, right? So for a quantitative researcher, one of the instruments is a survey. Uh, for us as an ethnographer, one of your instruments is your body, your sensibilities, your stories, who you are. And so, and a lot of ethnographers, if they haven't written about this, they talk about it, right? Like, but if you look at, uh, I didn't put it in the, well, some of it is in the last few pages, but like the epilogue, or sometimes they call it author's note or whatever. I, when I'm reading an ethnographer, I always read those first because I go there to encounter the answer to the question that you just asked. And it's that it stays with you. You go home. Like I remember famously one ethnographer says like, you know, they go from the field. Right, it's what we call it going into the field, right? You go into do the, the, the research and you're spending time with people. So this was somebody that was spending time with a lot of super poor people. And then they go home. And when they go home, their day job is as a professor and they're drinking um, really nice wines. And, and, and what this ethnographer says is that they're calculating the, bot- the price of the bottle of wine that they're drinking and thinking about how much of this person's rent it would pay, Right. And that was literally leaving two days ago and coming home, right? So it comes, it stays with you. If you're not careful, at least temporarily, um, especially if you have a good therapist, it could be like less time. You just become like a a, a pompous jackass, um, um, all sort of like a, this ethical, morally ethical, pompous person that as soon as you come back from the field, you're requiring everybody around you to also recognize that, you know, your Trader Joe's um, 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 all organic uh, grocery bill could have sponsored somebody's apartment for a week. Now, there's a way for you to carry that in a positive way, right? As time has sort of past from me for me there's a few things about my time in Jackson that has stayed with me one is that like poverty it's it's easy to sometimes think about you know poverty like it builds character it builds grit it builds all of, but poverty also destroys human capability and we should be worried about that so that's always stayed um, the other thing is like the really hard work that a lot of people who are trying to make things better are doing that also stayed with me and made it important. And then the other thing that I encountered a lot in Jackson is how much local politics matter and how we change the lives of people who are experiencing some of these things that, um, that, that, that are, um, destroying human potential and human capabilities. Um, so so, so everything stays with you. It stays, you don't forget it. Like you, you not, and not just the stuff that ends up on the pages. There are the things that don't end up on the pages that are part of your memories and your things. And it just stays with you. And, and I think for some of us, the hope is that you channel all of that angst, all of that stuff to continue to do the work and continue to advocate and continues to talk um, about, and on behalf of people who are experiencing things that, we just think it's not good enough. Like we just, it's not good enough for people to be living and struggling the way they are um, while others are sort of thriving. And the difference between why somebody's thriving and why somebody's not is sometimes it's luck, sometimes being born in the right place at the right time. And we over attribute to that somebody's hard work or not hard work. What do you make of that over attribution to someone's hard work or not hard work? Because you are a sociologist, so connections between like the forces that that like kind of make up the identity of a society. It's a focus that we tend to take on the podcast quite a bit of examining like individualism and like roots of, I mean, frankly, at times like overt or covert white supremacy and mm-hmm. the roots of that in in different um you know, the forces, it comes from Christianity, it comes from capitalism, it comes from uh, toxic individualism. It's not that any of these things are explicitly white supremacist, but sometimes they really can be. But I wonder for you, um, regardless of my own lens, when you talk about that at misattribution or overattribution of like hard work as the the metric of social justice <laughs> in society, where do you think that story or misattribution comes from? Have you given it much thought? Yeah. I mean, I think you point to one of this, right? We tell stories about ourselves. We tell stories to make sense of ourselves, right? So um, 
if you get to college, I teach at Davidson College, you get to Davidson College, um, teach my intro to sociology class. First essay that I asked him to write was, how did you make it to Davidson? Like, how, why Davidson, sociologically speaking? And they'll write these essays about how hard they worked and all that kind of stuff. It's good stories to tell about ourselves. And then at the end of the semester, I have them write the same essay. Um, how did you make it to Davidson? And if I've done my job well, they start to att- attributing it to, you know, these larger structural forces. Is hard work a part of it? Absolutely. Right. But if it was just about hard work, then the people I mean, <laughs> what I find baffling is that we don't think poor people work hard, which like is the dumbest thing ever. Like that couldn't be further from the truth. Right. The amount of work it takes to sustain oneself with as few resources as possible is 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 one that I, I don't think a lot of people can really fathom. And so so I think it's all of it's it's how America tells the story. It's how and even as an immigrant, I'm, I moved here when I was 13. I've come to believe, right? So if I ask myself, how did I get to where I'm at? By all means, I'm going to say part of it is um, hard work. And so I think we just tell stories to make in sociology and cultural sociology, there's this sort of lens of explaining human existence with narratives. And it's part of the narratives that we use to make sense of our lives. Um, and there's something beautiful about it. Um, but you know, I think with the work that you do and the people that show up on this podcast, what we're all trying to do is like, let's tell as honest the stories about ourselves as possible. And there's really deep beauty in that too. Yeah, I agree. I think there's an element of liberation that that can come too. And in addition to the beauty of the recognition, a feeling of um, seeing more possibilities there than maybe what we have been told or give credit to. Yeah. So that's a really lovely answer, Joseph. Thank you. I, I did want to ask you, because you mentioned about your experience as, as an immigrant to the United States. Um, and I wonder, especially with what we're talking about now, the kind of like prototypical American myth, myths and stories that, that kind of govern how, quote unquote, we want to believe the world works and how life works. Have you experienced any... Um, I mean, I'm going to assume that you have, but I'm curious about if you have noticed in your experience as a Ghanaian American contrasts between the stories of like what it means uh, culturally for for your family or your upbringing in in Ghana uh, about some of those like formative myths and stories. Is there is there also that because Anglo European colonialism and empire have really done a great job of spreading their ideas all over the world. So I'm sure these ideas exist uh, in many parts of West Africa as well. But is there that same um, sentiment that like hard work equals um, liberation, that hard work equals uh, wealth and comfort and abundance? Or are there other, like whether spiritual, religious, or kind of cultural um, expectations that that there's more or different yeah. play. Yeah, that's a profound question too. And it's it's one that, you know, I think about often as I assess how much, you know, if I was to turn my sociological lens onto myself, right? I have also become socialized into this society, into this world, right? Um, I am American as the next person. And I think sometimes when I go out of the country, when I go back home to Ghana as well, my cousins look at me and it's like, wow, you become really American. And I think part of what they mean by that is this calculation of like, if I do ABC, this and this should happen. Um, but I think for me, all of that is also like tinged by the fact that really nothing is owed to anybody, right? Part of this is luck. Part of this is a blessing in a, in a sort of like faith Judeo-Christian sense. Part of it is um, um, God's will. Part of it is your ancestors blessing you to be able to see these things, right? Um, it might sound crazy, but I think my next project is 100% my grandfather who passed some time ago, sort of like employing me to do this project. It's not some calculation in my head. Um, so I think it's combinations of of those kinds of things. But, but you know, I think as most immigrants would also sort of admit, you come to America because it's the place where you believe if you do ABC, these things should happen. What's crazy about that is <laughs> that's true, 
but it's a very incomplete story about what this place is, right? And, you know, the the unending wisdom of uh, Chimamanda Adichie is they're like, single stories are just dangerous, right? Because they're, they're half-truths, right? So the half-truth in this country is that if you work hard, it might pay off. But that's a half-truth because working hard is not the only thing that gets you to, to get to the things that you want to get to. Um, and even if, even when you compare, uh, the U S to some European countries, a place like France, there are certain places where, um, it's understood your lot in life is decided for you as soon as you're born. And the America, America in some ways always bucked against that in some ways. And in some ways it, exist exactly the same. But in America, the difference is we are all lied to that you can, everybody can go to Harvard if you want to. But it turns out that's actually not true. But I don't know if I want to live in a world where we agree that that's not true, or I want to live in a world where even though that's not true, we're all made to believe that that's possible. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. There's an aspirational. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I, I feel exactly. like that does define a lot of the American story, right? Where so exactly. much of it is aspirational and hypocritical, precise. like completely paradoxical. Yeah, absolutely. Precise. And I, I yeah. love that saying that you quoted that, that single stories are dangerous. Like it gave me a chill down my spine. I was like, Ooh, I gotta, I gotta write that one down and maybe put a tattoo yeah. of it on my arm. Cause that's a really beautiful, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really beautiful reminder. Yeah, it's, it's a scary reminder too. Yeah. It's the worst. And I think that's, that's what makes telling stories, um, difficult and um, doing it right. At least that's what makes doing it right very difficult because it's it's just not single stories, easy stories, uncomplicated stories are just so, they're ubiquitous. They're all over the place. It sells quickly. Um, it fits right in the thinkings of people. And so people get it immediately and it works. And if you want to not do that, um, the things that it requires is just harder on you as a writer and harder to convince your readers to really understand that as well. But I mean, that's what, that's what our lives are. That's what humanity is. It's really complicated stories about, about things. Now it's not so complicated that we can't sort of like find a way to understand certain trends, right? Like it is, it's not complicated that men get paid more than women for the same, for the same work. That's not that complicated. Um, but the mechanisms that keep that going, the way that we experience those things, the ways that it makes all of us feel, the ways that it, all of those kinds of things, it's just, it's, it's, it's jumbled up in some complicated ways. And we just have to be attentive, attentive in telling those stories. Yeah. Being attentive to telling those stories. I love that. So Joseph, we're, we're rounding down towards the end of our conversation, which you know, selfishly, I, if I could keep you on the line forever to talk about these things, I would. Um, but you, um, I, I do have a few more questions. And you you started to uh, allude to and speak to the next project. And you spoke to it in some in pretty powerful ways. Because uh, that was one of my questions was, you know, how you go about choosing your next book after what was such an immersive um, experience, you know, and, and as, a, as a writer myself, I always try to bring a quality personally. I've never written an award-winning book or anything, but I always try to, I always try to bring like as much of, of your experience, right, to your the stories that you're telling. The amount of depth and work that went into getting something to eat in Jackson would frankly intimidate the shit out of me to pick the next project. So I'd just be like, I'd be I'd be stressing about everything, every consideration because of uh, anticipating how much work goes into it, right? And how much you might immerse yourself into a story. So that is a long-winded way to ask the question of how are you in the process of choosing the next book? And, and you kind of started to speak to this, um, but I'm curious about how you go about stepping into that decision-making process. And this one, it sounds like it's, it's coming through to you in a little bit of a different way. Yeah. Um, um, I, I just know that at some point I have to write about Ghana. I have to write about, uh, the, the, yeah, I have to write about Ghana and I don't know. I didn't know when it was, I thought it was going to be my dissertation. I was advised against it. Um, smartly. And I appreciate the advice that I got to hold off on that. I'm glad that I did. I think I'm a more mature person to tell a more complicated story about Ghana than I could have back then. Um, if writing about Mississippi is hard, writing about Africa 
uh, any African countries is really, really hard because the narrative on what Africa is, is less, it's just tattooed on everybody's brain, including on the brains of Africans, right? Um, you know, it's poverty. It's, it's either like poverty, everything is terrible or, and, you know, Go and look at the covers of Time magazines, right? And if we go and collect all Time magazine covers that has something to do with Africa, you will see two things. One is that it's the dark continent. Everything is terrible. Or it's the continent of the future. This is where everything is happening, right? Like, you know, it's the century of Africa. Or this is where, you know, the the, the youngest populations in the world are on the African continent. It, like, it's Africa either has nothing and it's terrible or it has potential and we'll see what becomes of it. Um, so that's where I'm at. Um, I say that... I say that um, um, this is a special one. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to write about the experiences of Ghanaian migrants, right? Um, my sociology friends will say, or researcher friends will say, like, I'm finally doing me search, right? I'm doing research about me and my experience. The way it sort of came about was, I think I knew I always wanted to do something like that. Um, I think the uh, African migrants are a really small population and are small percentage of um, migrants in the U.S., I don't think they amount to even more than five or six or seven percent. But I think they're really, really interesting because they slide into a really sort of never ending hot button, complicated story about race in America. Right. So they come, they're black. And because of that, um, or I would say sub-Saharan Africans, most most of them, they come to the U.S. and they're racialized as black. And because of that, they slide right into the messiness of race, especially, especially the black white dichotomy. And so I knew I wanted to do something about that. Um, uh, And it's a sort of way of like really refiguring this us and them conversation. That's always driving a lot of my work. Right. So they come, they make their lives here, but they're migrants. So they will never be us in the way that somebody like you is an American and us, um, um, and they also may never be us in a black American culture where they're in and they're black like everybody. Right. So they may not be us in them, uh, but they might be them in some ways. Right. But 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 the way it's fascinating how this worked, the way uh, black Americans. Black Africans are penalized is also very different from the way black Americans are penalized. Right. White folks sometimes are more comfortable having the black person in your company, in your school, in your whatever to be some a black person of African descent than a black person from Detroit. I'm very clear on that, that that's part of what my institution or whoever allows me into their space, the comfort that I'm an African migrant um, plays versus if I was from Detroit or Oakland or Chicago or wherever. So I think that's really important. Um, But can I tell you the more personal reason why I'm doing this project? I'd love to. Yeah, please. So the more personal reason is this. My father goes to Ghana some time ago and in my grandfather's old office, there's a box sitting in the corner and you know, my, I don't know if he was being dramatic or not, but my dad says, you know, my my sister, my aunt and uncle, we're just about to throw this box away. So we open the box. He opens the box. I wasn't there. He opens the box and he sees folders and folders and folders. What's inside of these folders? Letters. Apparently, my grandfather kept. Oh, let me back up for a minute. My father had about seven siblings. Half of them traveled abroad. Right. To. A lot of it in the U.S., but to Australia and London and so on and so forth. Um, The other half stayed in Ghana. Apparently, my grandfather kept every letter that he received from his children who who traveled abroad. And he kept a carbon copy of his typed out responses to every single one of them. Oh, wow. My grandfather was also a preacher, so he kept all his sermons or as many of his sermons as was in there. So in total, we have like, you know, 3000 and some change letters, um, both. And it's a true correspondence in the sense that it's not just the letters that my grandfather received, but it's his responses to those letters as well. And in this, and these letters, which span, I mean, I think the earliest one is the mid seventies. It just spans this really long stretch where there are all of these 
beautiful retellings of people's lives, right? Like I see the letters in there of when my mom met my dad or when I was born or when all my cousins who were born outside of the country, how their, how their parents thought about what names to give them and all these stories are in there. And so as I'm going through these letters, for me, it's a weird thing of like, it's a communication with my grandfather. It's like, why did he do this? Why did he keep it? Why, like, how did it come up? And the other crazy weird thing is I'm named after him, right? My middle name, the C in my middle name is my grandfather. Um, and in my sort of Ghanaian context, there's supposed to be, or there is this like intimate connection between you and the person that you're named after. So much so that my grandmother, when she was alive, when she was calling me, she would refer to me as husband because I am literally that person. So for me, it's like having all of this stuff and I don't think it's an accident that I'm the one who thinks this is a treasure trove or I'm the one who thinks, is you know what I mean? And like swimming through it and learning about and reading his writing and seeing how he thought his perceptions, like the cognitive empathy of my grandfather, right? All of those kinds of things is really like, there's no way you do this. And so, um, but you know, I'm also not like a, like a. Uh, a literature professor, right? So how do I put a sociology spin on these letters? And it turns out, and I won't give you the lecture right now, it turns out one of the earliest American sociology uh, pieces of work is not only about migration, but it involves letters from migrants. Interesting. Wow. So it draws us all the way back to the very beginning of American sociology at the University yeah. of Chicago. A lot of, lot of richness there. And I mean, before you even mentioned the that kind of like Ghanaian tradition of connection between someone who is named after a, a relative, just hearing mm -hmm. how your grandfather documented and kept records of so many things, I was like, he sounds Madness. like he could have been a professor himself, Madness. you know, like exactly. you, you might have inherited exactly. that trade from him Madness. for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's That's special. Beautiful. Wow. Yeah, well, we look. I look forward to uh, you know, without any pressure added or any timeline <laughs> expectations. Look forward to to hearing how that project uh, may unfold in the future, Joseph. And um, you know, I just I do have one last question for you because you know we've been talking a lot about stories and experiences. We've had a great conversation about you know these kinds of questions and what comes up around asking yourself about you know whether or not a story is yours to tell and how you go about you know the, the many ways that you can go about uh, approaching it delicately with humility with. Uh, grace with um, you know various self disclosures and self understanding with regard to being an ethnographer it's it strikes me and you mentioned you said there's there's instruments that include your your humanity your body your story and your sensibilities and I wonder if you might leave a little bit of uh, wisdom or advice with our listeners who are probably neither. Uh, cultural sociologists or ethnographers or professors and and may not even be like storytellers in the sense that I described like you know some of my my clients mm -hmm. who write and tell stories. I wonder if there's a particular trait uh, as an ethnographer that you think or tend to hear yourself maybe encouraging people, you know what? Use your body or you like you know what? like listen more or ask, ask better questions. I wonder if there's like a, an offering, uh, whether it's a skill or a practice or a mindset, that you think yeah. ethnographers do well that can serve somebody in 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 just like living the story of their lives. What what do you what comes to mind for you? Yeah, um, that's a profound question. So when I teach qualitative methods, what I tell my students is that I love this way of doing research, not because of the analytically interesting things that it gives us, but because of how it changes who we are as people. Right? I think. If you do it well, you become a better person um, as a qualitative researcher. And the doing it well part entails a couple of things. One is that it's not about you. For just that moment when you're listening and talking to somebody, it's about them. You have to honor them. And for me, that comes in a lot of different ways. It comes in your posture and how you listen to them, right? Like, it's like, you know, anybody, people have their iPhones now. When you take a portrait on your iPhone, you see that everything behind it is blurred. That's because the camera is doing this thing where it's forcing your eyes to not pay attention to anything else but the thing, the subject in front of you, right? When I'm listening to people, I kind of want to get in that zone where 
actually visually and sort of like imaginatively, everything else is blurred. And the thing that you're holding on to, the honoring is the person that's really right in front of you. So I think that's super, super important. Um, if we did that more in life, <laughs> we would be better people because there were moments where you're like, you know what, when this person is talking, I know you have a related story. I know you can also tell the story about going to Applebee's, but right now it's not about your story about going to Applebee's. Whoever's talking to you, it's their turn to tell you that story about going to Applebee's. So I think that's super, super interesting. I don't know why Applebee's is the example that I'm thinking about, but it just is, right? <laughs> we, we, could take the, we could take the advertisements if exactly. anyone from Applebee's is listening. <laughs> I think, um, I think, so that's, that's really, really important. I think the other thing is when we get to the stage of interpreting people's stories, right? Cause you will take in the story and you will want to put some meaning to it. I think the question that I often ask myself is that why am I given this particular meaning to it? That is to say, what is it about who I am? Maybe my race, maybe my class, maybe my sexuality, maybe my nationality, maybe my, what is it about who I am? Maybe spiritually, all of that stuff that gets me to interpret the story the way that I did. And the actual exercise is if you told that same story to somebody with different sets of social identities than you, how differently would they interpret that story? And so once we do that exercise, we realize that our interpretation of whatever story we have, A, isn't the only one, B, isn't the most accurate one, right? Um, and C, there is a difference that we have to factor in and figure out, right? Um, the, the social scientist in me has to worry or has to always confront the fact that as a qualitative researcher, um, I'm also engaging in an interpretive enterprise. I am interpreting the stories that I get. My quantitative friends are taking all their data, giving it to some computer, and it's it's helping them at least interpret it, right? Like, now they would also say when the computer spits something out, they have to do the interpretive thing. Um, but all the same, one Pay attention to the person in front of you that's telling the story. And two, always ask yourself, why am I interpreting the story the way that I am? And could they be other interpretations of the story? Yeah. So uh, I love how you say that, Joseph. It's, it's not about you. Honor them. Pay attention to the person in front of you. And also consider how differently somebody might interpret it based on their, their social identity. It's really powerful stuff. And I think it's something that's very applicable to anybody who's listening, whether or not they're a, a storyteller or an ethnographer or not. So... With that, Joseph C. Awudzi is the Van Associate Professor of Racial Justice at Davidson College. His book is called Getting Something to Eat in Jackson, Race, Class, and Food in the American South. Joseph, I could talk to you forever, like I already said. Thank you so much for spending this time with us and for uh, this really deep dive on, on storytelling and everything that goes into telling uh, stories of, of people's lives. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, it's an honor to be a part of like the long list of really incredible, cool storytellers who have been on this podcast. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. We hope you enjoyed what you heard today. You can always find us at thenewstory.is, including our full back catalog of interviews from throughout the year. Leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts, especially to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It goes a long way in helping us find and share our work with new listeners. Until soon, dear listener, keep storying on. We'll speak to you soon. Bye for now.